Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 46, which will feature executions, escapes, and hit, hesitate, and run tactics. So this week we start our story with the shooting of an Eightlander, or foreigner, in Pretoria. In July, Lieutenant Hans Cordua, who was a German, had led a plot to overthrow the British once they'd arrived in the Transvaal capital, Pretoria. Lieutenant Cordua had fought for the Boers and was captured, but later released on parole. He had barely gained his liberty before he hatched a plot to assassinate Major Karl Barschard, who was an officer of the West York Regiment. The German also apparently planned to kill Lord Roberts, who commanded the British Army in South Africa. The English, though, were tipped off by a British agent, who said Cordua would be dressed in British Army uniform when he tried to kill Barshad, and that there would possibly be other assassins. After a lengthy court-martial, the German was found guilty and sentenced to be shot. Cordua was brought before a ten-man firing squad after he'd written the last letter to his family. He preferred no blindfold, staring straight at his executioners. Ready, aim, fire! After the execution, it was found that seven of the ten rounds had penetrated his heart. So much for the theory that in a firing squad, only one rifle has a round, the rest blanks. It's also to be noted that in shooting terms, this was quite an accurate grouping. I found a San Francisco Call newspaper report into this incident published later in 1903, which featured the headline, War Romance Has Sad Ending. Court Martial Robs a Boer Girl of Her Sweetheart. Well, the story doesn't quite end there. Apparently, the same sweetheart hired a hitman in Pretoria to climb through Major Blanchard's window one night to kill him. Unfortunately for the sad Boer maiden, the hitman was expected and was shot dead by Blanchard, who woke up with his window being raised, firing at the man at point-blank range. Major Blanchard ended up in the USA and spent some time travelling about, spinning many a yarn about his experiences during the Boer War in South Africa. But the big talking point at this moment, it's August, was Lord Roberts. It was the first time a Boer officer had been executed in such a manner, and for Roberts to sanction the execution was out of character. Some said it was the effect of Lord Roberts's wife, Nora, who was now living with the commander-in-chief in Pretoria, along with their two children. And by all accounts, she was not really the target of misogynists. Nora was actually bigger and more aggressive than her officer husband, and had publicly called for the Boers to be treated harshly. If you extrapolate further, Nora Roberts was really a fearful force of nature. She had let it be known that the British were treating Boers too leniently and expected more violent punishment to be meted out by the British. So it was then, the day after Cordua was shot, that Lord Roberts issued an edict expelling several hundred Boer women and children from their homes in Pretoria. They were packed into open cattle trucks in the middle of winter and sent away to join the other Boers near Machadadorp in the eastern Transvaal. While Roberts and his spouse were not physically present during their departure, it was reported that these women and children sang what is known as the Volkslied, the people's song, and appeared to be happy to be leaving the city that had really become a giant prison. Roberts had sent a message to President Kruger and his military commander, General Louis Boerter, at the same time saying that if the Boers continued destroying his railway line, then he'd stop feeding Boer women and children. 
The British were going to keep their word, as we'll see. While all of this was going on in Pretoria, to the west, close to the town of Rustenburg, a Boer commander was waiting for his moment. General Kurs de la Rey headed up a unit of 1,500 burghers who were to become feared by the British over the next two years. At this moment, he had decided to target Rustenburg, which lies around 130 kilometers to the west of the capital, Pretoria. It was a strategic town lying on the main road between Pretoria and the border with Bechuanaland, or modern-day Botswana. Lord Baden-Powell was garrisoned there with around 2,000 troops, but de la Rey skirted the town and headed further west, near a settlement called Brackfontein. That's where Colonel Hoare and 500 Australian Imperial Bushmen troops were stationed. They called themselves Bushmen, which is not to be confused with the description of South Africa's original indigenous people, the San, who at that time were called Bushmen. History can be confusing. So Colonel Hoare had been placed in charge of the Australians, who were guarding a group of women and children refugees. They had set up a large camp near the Elance River, which provided both troops and civilians with water as they waited at Brockfontein. De La Rey knew that Lord Carrington had been dispatched from the west to relieve this Australian force, but before he could arrive, De La Rey struck. He approached on the 5th of August, but the British got wind of his imminent arrival. They set about erecting a bulwark of stones, stores, biscuit tins, ox wagons and flower bags on a small copy. They also knew that the Boer force was three times their own size and that without reinforcements arriving soon they were doomed. On the morning of the 5th of August, General Delorey opened fire on the biscuit tinned garrison with his artillery and proceeded to cause great carnage. While the troops were able to keep a low profile, their animals were not. On the first day, most of the British horses, numbering a few thousand, and their oxen and other animals were killed by the artillery. This created a stench that increased the following day, the 6th, while the word had reached Lord Carrington's relief force that De La Rey was indeed busy. Carrington tried to relieve the town and got within four kilometres, but was then confronted by one of De La Rey's commando units and backpedalled ignominiously as far west as Zierast. 130 kilometers away from Rustenburg, westwards on the dusty coach road. Carrington was so nervous of Delaray that he believed Zeras was also under threat and retreated still further west and eventually back to Mafeking, virtually on the Bechuanaland border. Meanwhile, Lord Baden-Powell had heard the artillery on the 5th of August and decided to head west, guessing that Colonel Hoare and his Australians were under attack. Remember, Baden-Powell was based in Rustenburg. Another force to the east, under Colonel Hamilton, was converging on Rustenburg as well, so the 500 Australians believed they would be saved pretty soon. That meant there were three large British forces converging on the battleground. However, the fog of war descended on this poorly coordinated group of British soldiers. Colonel Hamilton arrived east of Rustenburg on the 6th and also heard the sounds of artillery and battle. So picture the scene, if you will. Colonel Hoare and hundreds of women and children hunkered down behind biscuit tins and wagons, along with the Australians, while three different large British forces had been heading to help. Carrington had already got cold feet, as we've heard, and after this, confusion reigned. Baden-Powell's force had reached about halfway between Rustenburg and Brackfontein, but he heard the firing die away towards the west. Shockingly then, for a man famed for his scouting prowess, he surmised, or guessed, that Carrington had actually arrived at the town and saved Hall, the refugees, and the Australians. So he ordered his men back to Rustenburg. The following day, the 7th of August, 
Carrington sent Lord Roberts a message that he'd failed to relieve Prachfontein. Roberts appeared to panic. Instead of ordering both Baden-Powell and Hamilton to relieve Colonel Hall, the Australians and the refugees, he ordered them to leave the garrison to its fate and to retreat back to the capital of Pretoria. That was more than a day's ride east, away from the surrounded Australians. Delaray and his men were somewhat surprised, to say the least, and could now give Colonel Hall and his men their undivided attention. There was no British column anywhere near Rustenburg to bring relief, so Delaray resorted to the usual Boer tactics once a town was surrounded. Instead of charging in, they waited, content that each day brought the chance of surrender closer. That was a mistake. What Delaray didn't know was that his erstwhile colleague, General Christian de Vett, who was riding with 2,500 Free State Boers, was also in Robert's sights. And for once it appeared the British had a clever strategy. De Vett, as we heard last week, was being surrounded in the Free State when his men found a gap in the British units on the Vaal River. De Vett and his men entered this gap on the 6th of August. The area is to the south of Rustenburg, and Lord Roberts looked at his map and realised that both De Vett and De La Rey were actually going to be squeezed into an area west of Pretoria and north of the Vaal. Both Boer generals would be trapped by over 26,000 British soldiers. The end surely was nigh. Roberts had placed General Methuen north of the Vaal River for just this eventuality, that De Vett would jump the river and likely to head straight into the trap. So you can understand Lord Roberts's plan, and even understand why he left 500 Australians to their fate near Rustenburg. Just as an aside, my father used a phrase from the Second World War for the British infantry. He called them PBIs, poor bloody infantry always likely to be used as pawns on the larger battlefield. Delaray's decision to lay siege to the town actually helped Roberts. When the British commander heard about their action, he guessed Delaray would employ the wait-and-see tactic the Boers were famous for, and he did. But we must accept that had Delaray launched a full frontal assault, his men would have suffered great casualties with the Australians dug in and well-armed. So let's shift attention to where action was taking place, that is, with General Christian de Vett, who now had crossed the Val River. Was he to ride into a trap and be routed by General Methuen? De Vett, as you know, had made his move on the 6th, slipping across the Val at Skumansdrift, which was one of the few crossing points the British had failed to secure. This appeared to be a carefully calculated move by Lord Roberts, allow De Vett to slip into the Transvaal and be trapped by Methuen's forces to the north and Lieutenant General Hunter and Lord Kitchener to the south. However, it was really a humiliating event for the British. They had believed De Vett was holed up in the Renostaput Mountains near Potchefstroom and that they had well and truly bottled him up. They didn't know his scouts under Donny Teron and Captain Skippers had found a crossing unguarded. The first to fail was really Lord Kitchener, or K for Chaos, as some of his men called him. That was because he appeared to ignore the army system specifically in logistics and made decisions on the hoof, while some are gifted in their ability to think laterally and quickly, Lord Kitchener was not. He just made decisions quickly that often made no sense. By now, the disasters linked to Kitchener were pretty extensive. He'd lost an entire convoy at Waterfall Drift in February. He'd caused the loss of the Derbyshires at the Ranosta River. Let me explain. Kitchener had four divisions under his command, which included Broadwood and Little's Cavalry Brigade and Charles Knox's mixed force of mounted and foot soldiers. 
Just across the Vaal, and lying in wait for Devet, was Methuen's column of yeomanry. Further behind Methuen, a kind of long stop, if you like, was Smith Dorian and his brigade based along the krugersdorp Claxtorp railway line. What was required was one of these four divisions confronting Devet and keeping him busy just for a day, which would provide enough time for at least one and perhaps two of the other columns to catch up. That would have been curtains for the Boer leader. But Kitchener had scrutinized the map and told Methuen to head downstream on the Vaal. In other words, further southwest. This is what had opened up the gap for De Wet at Skuman's Drift. Kitchener responded quickly, though, to De Wet's 2,500 men crossing the Vaal by ordering his cavalry to head upstream, thus missing De Wet again. Meanwhile, Methuen was trying to make De Wet's life a misery by dogging him as he moved and, believe it or not, was doing a relatively good job. Still, De Wet held the initiative. He halted around 8 kilometers north of Skumansdrift on the 7th of August when his scouts told him the English were moving rapidly towards Potterstrom in two divisions. He worried about being trapped if he used the road to Fenterskroen, which passed between two mountain chains to the north. I feared that the English would block the way there, he said. I had to avoid this at all costs, but I had barely a man available for that purpose. He led this commander of 2,500 and was acutely aware of being vastly outnumbered. Kitchener and General Hunter headed up a force of over 20,000 as they tracked the Boers. So De Wet rushed through this valley between the mountains and camped at Van Furen's Kloof and awaited his scout's update. They were not long in coming, and when the report arrived, De Wet was surprised. I cannot understand why the four scenario, which had arrived at Paris the previous evening, remained there overnight, nor why, when they did move on the following morning, they marched to Lindeku's Drift, eight miles up the Val River. He was speaking of the British, of course. The answer was simple. The British did not know where the main Boer army was. However, that didn't stop outlying troops under the command of Methuen from creating their own nasty little surprises for the Boers. For once... For example, the vet scouts couldn't get him the information quickly as Captain Skippers and his special unit was tied up in a day-long gunfight on the 8th with a convoy. This little group of scouts managed to extricate themselves at the last minute but not soon enough to warn the vet of Methuen's mounted infantry which were about to deal the Boer general one of his few losses so far in the war. But we'll leave that for next week, where De Wet loses his artillery and many wagons, while Lord Kitchener complains loudly to Lord Roberts about Johnny, or Colonel Hamilton. He had a golden opportunity to trap De Wet at precisely this point, but ended up dawdling for 48 hours, while his quarry put at least 60 kilometers between himself and the slow-moving British force. So please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes, and thanks to all the listeners sending personal accounts from family members and the stories you've told me about the events in this war that resounded across the world. Until next week, goodbye.